I'm Natalie Pearson from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, and I'm joined by Lee Morgan Besser. And I was wondering, Lee, if you could introduce yourself and let us know what you're working on and uh, where you're based. Sure. Good morning. I'm Lee Morgan Besser from the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University in Brisbane. Uh, my research broadly concerns the topics of authoritarian politics, uh, dictators, democratization, flawed elections, and Southeast Asia. Uh, in particular, focusing on Cambodia, Myanmar, uh, and Singapore. Great, thank you. And we are going to be focusing on uh, your work in Cambodia uh, in this podcast. So I was wondering if you could start by telling us uh, the big picture in terms of the political climate in Cambodia at the moment. Sure. I mean, if uh, if you've been following the news, um, both here in Australia, but in particular overseas, uh, Hun Sen, the longtime Prime Minister of Cambodia, who's been in power since 1985 uh, and who's head of the Cambodian People's Party, uh, initiated a sweeping crackdown uh, last year against basically every sector of the political system in the sense that he cracked down on the uh, independent press, which was a small part, but there's not many independent press organisations in Cambodia, but still cracked down on, on them. Uh, he dissolved the main opposition party, the Cambodian National Rescue Party, uh, which had done very well in the 2013 election against him. Uh, he dispelled civil society organisations uh, from the country, uh, most notably the National Democratic Institute, uh, which is sort of a Washington-led uh, group. Uh, and he's also continued to jail, uh, charge or jail, uh, key opposition leaders, um, and Kem Sokar, the president of the Cambodian National Rescue Party, is in jail, uh, and Sam Rancy is in living in exile uh, in Paris and not allowed to return uh, to Cambodia. So the big picture is a bad one, uh, in particular the crackdown that's been initiated. Um, several questions can be asked about why he cracked down, mm. Uh, and how he actually did it, and this is some of the stuff I will address in my in my talk here in Sydney. Fantastic. Um, so is this crackdown part of a broader pattern of repression that we tend to see between elections? Is it just part of the election cycle, or is it something more more serious? Yeah, I mean, there's two ways you can look at it in in, in relation to Cambodia, but the f but there is a problem in how this uh, this crackdown is analysed. So typically, between elections in Cambodia, there is repression. Um, you've seen it between 1993 and 1998, and then even sort of 2018 to 2013. So this is fairly common. Uh, Hun Sen has a tendency to win flawed elections and then uh, repress certain parts of the within the political system. Now, what's different this time is the scale uh, and the severity. Um, whereas in the past, there might be the occasional assassination or the occasional opposition leader being uh, jailed but then quickly released. It's a sort of catch-and-release strategy. Uh, that hasn't happened this time. Um, what's different this time is how widespread the crackdown was in the sense that it touched on the media, mm. civil society organisations, mm. opposition parties, mm. uh, and citizens as well. So there's that factor. So it's sort of the scope. And then the severity as well. I mean, few uh, expected the opposition party to be dissolved entirely. Uh, this is different to sort of Hun Sen's modus operandi for decades now. 
he's always allowed elections and allowed competition. Uh, has been good elections and the competition hasn't been great, uh, but his strategy has been to seek legitimacy uh, through flawed but competitive elections. And this is what's different now mm -hmm. in that by dissolving the main opposition party, his biggest competitor, you serious, very serious questions can be raised about the credibility of the election. Uh, and in my talk here in Sydney, I'm going to discuss what this all means in the broader picture of authoritarianism and democracy in, in okay. Cambodia. So in terms of the swiftness and the severity of this crackdown, how do you explain the factors that have enabled that? Does his personal authority have something to do with it? Is he being enabled by outside support? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I think both of those things are important. Basically, I, I would argue there's sort of three underlying uh, factors uh, here. So if you look internationally, first of all, there's two sort of broader structural changes that have occurred. Uh, one, Donald Trump... Uh, in the White House. Um, now, the, the key... Well, I think a, a healthy debate can be had about Donald Trump's influence on democracy and human rights around the world. I think the fact that you have an American administration that is uninterested in democracy promotion and human rights in Southeast Asia is critically important. Mm. Uh, and especially if you look at the lack of State Department officials uh, overseeing those issues in this critical area of the world. And the message, at least for my, in my interpretation, the message Donald Trump is sending is that you are free to crack down uh, on citizens or opposition leaders, and there will be few consequences for right. doing so. Uh, you only have to look around the world at how many authoritarian regimes are using, quote, fake news bills uh, to silence dissent. Mm. Um, so I think that's a critical factor, sort of the, the US administration at the moment. The other factor or the other role uh, is coming from China. So in particular, China's uh, development and uh, investment in Cambodia is giving an umbrella of protection to Hun Sen, which he didn't have previously. So while China has always invested in Cambodia, it's the scale of that investment and then no strings attached to it mm -hmm. uh, that allows him uh, to get away with it. So to give a simple example, China uh, is uh, giving the National Election Commission in Cambodia enormous resources to carry out the election. And China has already said, despite the serious questions that can be asked about the forthcoming election, that it will be free and fair before the actual election has taken place. Great. <laughs> so that's a critical factor, that sort of blank check mm. approach from China, uh, the no strings attached. So there's sort of two international factors, and then there's definitely... Uh, Hun Sen's personal authority. Uh, in a previous paper published uh, by the Journal of Democratization, I made the argument that whereas scholars had traditionally classified Cambodia as a sort of a party-based regime where the Cambodian People's Party was the, the dominant political actor, I made the argument that by 2005 at least, so 20 years into his, mm. his executive term, uh, Hun Sen had usurped the party, so to speak. He had become more important than the party, and his authority had become mm. uh, more important. The party isn't completely irrelevant. I think it's important during election years, and then in the period between elections, it becomes far less important. It's important in terms of uh, distributing patronage and buying votes, uh, but that's still all under the direction of Hun Sen. Um, and I, in this paper and in my talk, I'm going to uh, discuss 
Hansen's personal authority and just what exactly it entails, how he managed to do this. It's not uncommon for this to occur uh, in dictatorships, but it's still a fascinating case uh, because it took him 20 years to do it. Mm. Uh, and it's now at the point, I would argue, where the party cannot credibly threaten him mm. with removal, since mainly because of how much control he has over the security forces, but in particular the paramilitary force that he's built. Yeah. Um, and in the paper, I, I put an estimate at this force numbering around 26,000 soldiers. That's really personally, large, isn't it? Mm. Personally loyal to him. Yeah. And he's had... Well, you made that argument in 2005, so he's had you know, over a decade to yeah. consolidate that, yes. that personal authority as well. Yeah, so. absolutely. Um, so I think those sort of three critical factors. Uh, in my talk in, in Sydney, I'll, I'll discuss how, despite the fact that the crackdown over the last year was all administered in a legal way, so to speak, so by state institutions, Hansen's personal hand was on all these institutions. Right. Um, you take the, the tax case against the Cambodia Daily... I mean, he announces it, I think, on a Friday, and by the Monday, the tax department's investigating it. Mm. Um, so is that all part of him trying to present a veneer of legitimacy and democracy? And to who is he presenting that, that I, image? I think he's, in the case of the crackdown, I think he's trying to present a veneer of the rule of law mm -hmm. in that if the tax department closes down the Cambodia daily... Uh, if the Supreme Court dissolves the Cambodian National Rescue Party, these are all state institutions apparently, allegedly, following the rule of law. Yep. Now, of course, in authoritarian regimes, the rule of law is a very slippery mm -hmm. concept. I mean, it's traditionally understood as rule by law, mm. and I think that's what's occurred in Cambodia. It's, uh, it's what, in the case of Singapore, used to be called legal fixing. Right. So you use the law against your opponents or perceived opponents, mm. uh, and that gives it a veneer of legitimacy. So okay. Not legitimacy, it gives it a veneer of credibility, because if you simply go out and murder your opponent or jail your opponent um, in sort of a retrograde or arbitrary way, mm. it's not real, you can't really claim that the rule of law is on your side. Uh, so you use the rule of law and you claim that the Cambodian opposition is unprofessional or the Cambodia Daily has been yeah. silly about its tax status uh, and they're at fault here and the law says they're at fault. Yeah. So, uh, well, I guess I'd like to go in two directions, but um, I'll continue in this vein. First of all, who is he presenting that uh, that front to? Is it for the, the benefit of the Cambodian public or is it for the international community or is it for his own political uh, colleagues? I think, I think uh, the He's got two audiences in mind. Uh, one is the Cambodian public, so citizens in particular, in particular supporters, mm -hmm. uh, because I don't think he can convince non-supporters of his own legitimacy if he's cracking down on all these different actors. Uh, so he is basically making the argument to citizens that by undertaking these actions, only I can ensure Cambodia has political stability and doesn't descend backwards into the war that it's known for decades. And he frequently makes these statements when he's on okay. the campaign trail around the country. So I think citizens are the first actor. Uh, I don't think the, he's making that much of an argument or case f to the international community, Yep. simply because the crackdown is at odds with many of the established international norms mm -hmm. regarding the role of the free press, yep. the role of competitive politics, things like that. He's certainly suggesting to China that 
everything's under control here. Mm. Um, but even with Donald Trump in the White House, America still has, and the European Union and Japan in particular, still have a voice for democracy. So they're still concerned with it, but it's fledgling, mm. so to speak. Uh, and then, yeah, in particular, he's making a case to uh, political officials within the camp, within the ruling regime, okay. uh, saying that despite the 2013 election where the Cambodian National Rescue Party, which was an opposition coalition, despite the strong stance that they made and the strong vote returns uh, and the threat that they pose, I've taken care of this mm. now. And rest assured, everything is stable and fine. You can still trust me. Right. Because um, if he doesn't mitigate that threat, that electoral threat, uh, it weakens his position relative to other individuals within the party. This is despite the fact that they probably can't really th- credibly threaten him right. anymore. Um, and I think this is going to play out particularly important in terms of political succession mm-hmm. uh, when he eventually one day decides to step but down. Do you care to speculate on, on, on that? Uh, speculation is tricky and <laughs> prediction is even worse. Um, I mean, the literature I read and the theoretical literature I read suggests that so political succession is sort of what's referred to as the Achilles heel of all authoritarian regimes mm-hmm. because you're basically making a commitment to one individual at the expense of other power seekers or office seekers. Mm. Uh, and it's in within this environment that some individuals will be, how should we say, annoyed, mm-hmm. um, angry. Yeah, and less likely to give their support to you in, yeah. the, in, in the interim. Yeah, mm. so less likely to give your support to you and the the incumbent uh, designated leader. Mm. Uh, and that's where sort of things like factions start to emerge uh, and conflict usually arises. So I think that's important. That context is important, is that this political succession process is notoriously difficult mm. to uh, pull off in authoritarian regimes. Looking at Cambodia, uh, the evidence suggests that one of his sons uh, is going to take over. So they have been... S- actually not really slowly, but quickly moved into important positions of power within the military uh, and the party mm-hmm. uh, and within the, the state apparatus. Uh, so while the evidence suggests he's going to give power to one of them or, and nominate them as the successor, he doesn't appear to be in a rush to do this. Right. Uh, every time he says, or every time we think he's going to Pass the baton. Pass the baton. He says, oh, I'm going to stay in power for 10 more years. Okay. Um, Now, if if you return to the literature again, what this says is that individuals like Hun Sen, which are basically what we call personalist dictators, because the party cannot credibly threaten him anymore, he has complete say on when succession occurs. And absent succession, so if he continues to stay in power uh, for 10 more years, for example, it becomes more likely that popular protests or assassination occurs. Okay. And that's how he's removed from power. Right. Um, So I think it's difficult times ahead, and Mm. it's hard to actually predict. Uh, I think if he had his thinking cap on, he should probably give up power soon to one of his sons and protect what he's built for himself. So that would be a way of protecting his legacies to hand over that power sooner rather than later before these sort of difficulties arise. Yeah, I mean, what you, if you're a dictator, what you want to do is build into the legal system protection mm. 
for your legacy mm-hmm. uh, and for the crimes that you've committed in office, uh, human rights abuses, corruption, and things like that. So you want a legal safety net. You also want an institutional safety net in the sense that you want somebody in power who's not going to go after you. And mm. if you, you only have to look at Malaysia yes. this week yep. to see what happens when a dictator loses power and the incoming ruling coalition starts to target them for the corruption that they've perpetrated for perpetrated. the past few decades. It, That's right. I mean, cardinal rule, if you're going to be a dictator, don't lose an election. <laughs> Just It's advice from Lee yes. for all the authoritarian <laughs> regimes. Yeah. Um, so you've said that Cambodia is not a democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I think we, we've got a good understanding of why so many people might have thought that it was a democracy. So uh, instead of dwelling on that, how would you describe Cambodia today? Yeah, so I think you can describe it in two ways. And it's important to describe it in two ways because the, the crackdown is ongoing. Right. If the crackdown finished, I think you could be a bit clearer about this. Uh, so the literature that I read and I write about and my own work has confirmed that Cambodia is what they call a competitive authoritarian regime Mm -hmm. in that it holds elections that lack freedom and fairness and it allows competition, Mm -hmm. but the incumbent party always wins. Right. Except in a case like Malaysia, Mm -hmm. where they lose. Yeah. Okay. So that's what Cambodia has been up until now, a competitive authoritarian regime. I make the argument in my talk uh, in a forthcoming paper that it is transitioning from that uh, system from competitive authoritarianism to what is called hegemonic right. authoritarianism. In the simplest terms, this is one-party rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you look around the region, a case like Laos and Vietnam are sort of indicative of that. So you have one monolithic ruling party. Uh, competitive politics is not allowed. Would you describe all. Singapore as that sort of model as well? Uh, so it depends on how you define the hegemonic element, uh, but... Certainly some scholars define uh, Singapore in that way okay. as a hegemonic system. So there's a couple of different criteria you can use. You can say uh, it's had what they call super majorities in the legislature for more than 10 years, mm-hmm. or it's a ruling party that's been in power for more than 20 years. Uh, so it depends what criteria you use. Okay. Um, the problem with the scholarship is that it's very difficult to identify when it's beginning. You can always identify it 10, 20 years down the road. In hindsight, In yeah. hindsight. Uh, and so what I think is occurring in, in Cambodia is that the opposition's been dissolved, the main opposition party, you've, which has left roughly sort of 21 minor parties mm-hmm. competing in the, hoping to compete in the forthcoming election. So by the traditional definition, it's still loosely competitive in that you have a bunch of minor parties. Yep. Uh, I think down the road, you'll have less and less of those minor parties um, and you'll eventually end up with a system that looks like Laos uh, and Vietnam. And alongside, obviously, competitive politics, you have more repression, Mm. uh, but also more stability. Uh, And I think there's going to be a a clear role for the likes of Fresh News, which is sort of this de facto state media. Uh, I think it's shifting from de facto to just plain old state media. Okay. Um, Like like you see in China and other places. Um, So that would be the argument I'd make, that it is transitioning. Uh, And I made the case uh, on Twitter early last year that this is why the dissolving the Cambodian National Rescue Party heralded so much change, because you can't have 
non-competitive elections and a free investigative press. Mm. And this, for me, was always why the Cambodia Daily and the Phnom Penh Post were in so much trouble. Yeah, so could you talk a little bit more about this this issue of press freedom? Because Cambodia is ranked among the worst in the world, right, yeah. in terms of press freedom. Yeah, I mean, it's never been a good story in Cambodia. Uh, at least up until recently, you had an independent press in the form of the Cambodia Daily, the Phnom Penh Post, Voice of Cambodia, the radio station Voice of America, mm. uh, and the former two, the, the newspapers, did serious, impressive, award-winning investigative journalism uh, of the regime, including corruption, military repression, human rights abuses, land grabbing, mm. and things like that. Fantastic uh, institutions and newspapers. Now, what's happened, and what I think and it's still ongoing, mind you, is that by removing... Uh, competitive politics, this left, this exposed Hun Sen to a significant problem in that you had investigative journalists yep. in, a, in an environment uh, that was more corrupt, more repressive, uh, and less free than any time previously. Um, and so you, you can't really have both at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Um, and what he did in the case of the Cambodia Daily was use the tax department mm-hmm. against them. This is not uncommon. I mean, if you look around the world, Vladimir Putin in Russia, Paul Kagame in Rwanda, Viktor Orban in Hungary, mm. uh, they've all used this tactic. Right. Uh, so you use the tax department to get rid of your opponents. And what he did in case of the Phnom Penh Post is more interesting, Yeah. I think, because I think he learned from that example uh, in that despite its success, there's still cost in doing so in the sense that you still arouse international condemnation. And scrutiny, yeah. And scrutiny for using the tax department in that way. So in the case of Phnom Penh Post, he's got a former ally, a friend Mm. um, from Malaysia, an investor to come in and buy it and instantly curtail independent investigative Mm. uh, reporting. And he can basically say, well, my hands are clean here. I don't have any say over Mm. how a newspaper runs. Um, But... Despite that different strategy being used, the same tactic was used by Vladimir Putin, oh, right. Viktor Orban, Kagame, uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. The time-honored tactic of the current more sophisticated blend of dictator where you use a third party with loose connections to the regime and they come in as an independent in, uh, investor yeah. and they buy the paper. Uh, and then just start curtailing it. What uh, what I think is actually really interesting is how quickly it happened mm. once they'd bought the newspaper. Mm. Uh, and that was basically because the new editor tried to get a critical story about the sale taken down. That's right, yeah. And the journalists revolted yep. quite rightly, and that led to a bit of a fiasco. And so I th- how many have left now? Is it 12 journalists have, have resigned from the North uh, I think I saw it was around 12. Um, so all the foreign uh, editorial staff yeah. have left, uh, now conducting sort of freelance journalism, which still poses a, a okay. problem for Hun Sen's regime. So are they working for foreign media, like AFP or Reuters, or are they publishing um, online? I mean, my, I mean, I've had interactions with a few of them since the events uh, at the Phnom Penh Post, and some of them are already doing freelance writing yeah. uh, for sort of foreign large media corporations. So are there any prospects for optimism or... Looking looking forward? Um, <laughs> or opportunities? Perhaps? There's definitely opportunities. I mean, something I'm going to talk about in my discussion in Sydney uh, is this idea of the dictator's dilemma. So this is like a classic 
uh, concept in the in the field that I work in. It's this idea that dictators cannot truly know whether individuals support them or support them because they command support. Yep. So this idea of are people being obedient because they want to be or are they being obedient because you demand that they be obedient. Mm. Now, the, the risk here for Hun Sen's regime is that by removing competitive elections, competitive but flawed elections from the political system, you lose the institution that was a release valve on discontent. So people might be very angry with Hun Sen for the corruption and the repression, and right. then you go to elections and you vote for the opposition mm. as a protest. Mm. That doesn't exist anymore and won't exist in the forthcoming election. So where does that discontent go? People internalise it and they don't express it. Mm-hmm. So years down the road, I would not be too surprised if there's a popular protest. Okay. And that discontent, which has now been internalised because you don't have competitive elections to express it, express it mm. just erupts. Uh, and this is how authoritarian regimes end. Right. All revolutions are surprises. Well, certainly it's somewhere to keep a closer eye on. And thank you for sharing your insights. Is there anything further you'd like to add just before we wind up? No. No, we're done? No, thank, thank you so much. Not a problem. That was fun.